Good morning, Jerry. Good morning, John. How are you doing? Hey. Here I am. You are too. You are. Yes. Hey, we are. Know, yeah, we are. Therefore, we are. <laughs> wow, I just came up with that. Hey, uh, you know, people may have dropped in and they just started listening to the show. Why don't I give them a quick tour? What do you think? Good idea. Go for it. Okay. We are actual brothers and we do a podcast together. My name is Jerry. My name's John. There you go. That's a good start. And we every Saturday morning, we talk about four things. We record it, and then we put out a podcast later that morning. Those four things are, one, we talk about an animal that is part of the season we're in. This is a season of the whale. So we mm. talk. We have a whale story. Then we whale have a story. word. Mm. Yeah, we have a word that we ran into while we were researching, usually something to do with our topics. Then we have a topic we talk about. We have two takes on it, so we call it two takes. Last but not least, John. John gives a couple groaners. These are dad jokes. These are bad jokes in the form of questions. Right. I'm I'm taxed with the responsibility of answering those questions and solving the riddle or the pun or whatever it is. It's very exciting. But we, 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 but it's, it's just, it's for fun. It's more like an exhibition. It's not like we're holding you, uh, your feet to the fire and you have to answer them or you get some sort of penalty and also you don't get any present or any gift or any prize. It's so all you, in fun. Sometimes it is all in fun. It's, it's an exhibition. It's not a competition, but sometimes you lose control and you say, give that man a Cupid doll. But oh no yeah, I can get no one ever gives me a QP doll, though, so no harm, no foul, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I lost my uh, inventory of QP doll somewhere along the line, one of my moves. Didn't you get those from Ronco? No, accounting for that? Like at the circus or a flea market wow. or something, it's where you get a QP doll. Oh, okay. Not up on the QP doll protocol, but we'll have to look into that for the show. Hey, T-shirt. Should we talk about T-shirts? Oh, yeah. You know, we always make sure that we're formally attired, uh, particularly from the waist yeah. up. What happens below, only we know personally. No. That's it. But yeah. so we both have T-shirts on. And what T-shirt do you have on? Uh, you know, I think this is second week in a row. We did the wash this week. So I am wearing the Season of the Rat T-shirt back when we Ooh, had Yeah, season. that's the one you yeah. wore last week. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, I'm partial to this t-shirt. It's soft, thin, and it's getting warm down here. So, yeah, well, I, I like a good this one. t-shirt. Yeah, I went the animal you. route, too. Oh, so, which one? Yeah, I got Season of the Ox. I'll, that was a memorable season. Solid, okay, sturdy, strength, all Ooh. there. Yeah. I mean, we had, I mean, who could forget uh, Dave the Blue Ox? Who could forget me. the products we talked about, the beers, all that good stuff. So I just—it's a memory shirt for me now. I love it. Oh, glad to hear that. Hey, uh, you know we have a sponsor too, don't we? Yeah, we sure do. Our sponsor is Save the Whales. Uh, it's a nonprofit organization formed in 1977 by Maris. Sidenstacker back in the uh, in California, and the purpose of this organization 
was to uh, give a lot of education to the people so that we could make sure that we do right by whales. Uh, this is the kind of organization that's in, near and dear to our hearts, not only because of its environmental purpose, but because its funding source from the get-go were T-shirts. And oh, boy, yeah. do we like T-shirts. And do yeah, they do. have a T-shirt? So, yes, they do. Um, Let me tell you about it. They have a T-shirt. And one of the cool things about this T-shirt, I have a long sleeve T-shirt that you were kind enough to give me because it didn't fit you. I got your cast yeah. off again. <laughs> so anyway, hand me down. Cool hand me down. So the cool thing about it is that uh, it's got the whale logo, the Save the Whale logo on it. And, you know, it's not printed in obvious colors. It's a dark T-shirt, kind of dark blue, almost black. And then the printing on it is also blue, but it's a lighter shade. So it's not like your normal, you know, billboard style T-shirt. It's got some interesting design elements, and it's got the URL, the link to the site, going down the left arm. I'd never seen that before. Oh, yeah. Impressive. So if you want a, a really interesting T-shirt, they've got several. Go to their site. Uh, we got the links in the show notes. You can also there's a link if you just want to make a donation straight out to help save these wonderful animals and educate kids. And, you know, and adults alike in in the ways of whales, in the history and their physiology and their needs and how we can help them. Mm, all it. good. All That's good. It. That's it. Hey, uh, whale, story? whale story. Yeah, we always, because it's the season of the whale, we, we come up with a whale story. And, and Mr. Producer here came up with a interesting short story that's actually – entitled the whale so that's right you could enlighten us a little bit about it uh um or perhaps do you want me to start a little bit with the background on the uh, yeah why don't you get the background we had a heck of a yeah time. Well, you had a heck of a time finding it i'm glad you well, did yeah i mean I'm, I'm i'm one of these guys who want to get the deets about it maybe reviews of the short story etc and i just struggled immensely for this so i found out the author is listed as s uh, Carlinton and uh, I couldn't find anything on this person, but went to and through a variety of sources, I found out that this is a, uh, a pen name of a woman by the name of Susan Morrow Jones. She was born in 1864, uh, died 1926. I think this was published in the Atlantic, this short story, The Whale, in 1906. So she wrote a Canadian author from the Halifax, Nova Scotia, which kind of with the setting it's a little bit whale yeah. Uh, yeah. in terms of location. But she was uh, uh, she was married to a guy by the name of Guy Carlinton Jones, uh, who lived in 19, uh, from 1864 to 1950. He was a Surgeon General, a uh, Canadian Surgeon General, particularly during World War One. And you can actually find this short story in a book that was published uh, back in 2004. By uh, Dodo Press, which I don't know about that yeah. it still exists or not. <laughs> fifty-eight, fifty-eight-page uh, book that includes several other of her short stories, and if you uh, you could find it on Amazon.com. Uh, it says temporarily out of stock, but that might be that might be a, an old <laughs> message. I don't know. Yeah. But give it a shot. Twelve ninety-five if you find it interesting. Yeah. So that's a little bit of background on the author. So perhaps then you can enlighten us with the story itself. Yes, I'll tell you a little about the story. Uh, this is the setup for the story is that uh, it sounds like a story that was 
written maybe you know, about a time, maybe like 50 years before or so, or, you know, I don't think it was 1906 exactly. It might have been. But in any case, this is a story about a guy going to this Indian woman, a Micmac woman, to get his moccasins that she had made for him. And uh, he went to her place and it was raining outside. And she said, well, come on in and get dry and everything and sit by the fire and, and I'll get your moccasins and everything like that. So in the course of doing that, her grandkids were there and she was telling them stories. And so uh, he encouraged her to tell tell the story of the whale. And uh, mm. yeah, so, you know, she she told this story in the grand tradition of old Indian stories, which are, are made to scare kids in behaving and to admonish uh, adults to live good lives and and be good allies to the nature wow. around them. Nice. So so it's got a kinship yeah. thing to it. Very very much. And uh what's interesting about these stories and I I've, I've heard a lot of stories like these if you if you uh you know stay with uh Indian people for any Native American people for any period of time, you know, live with them actually in in their native habitat. They, you know, you'll you'll start hearing these stories. And uh, the interesting thing about a story is that, uh, like I said, it has a couple different goals. One is to keep kids from misbehaving. That's, all, that's a problem that's been going on since Adam and Eve. And then the other is, in the case of a lot of these Native American stories, is to depict the animals and uh, even natural things like stone, trees, clouds, whatever, as uh, animistic, as as they have a voice and they have a soul and they have, you know, they are part of the community. And even though as a person you're part of nature, you kind of stand apart from nature, too, and you have choices. You can make a choice to be an ally and to receive help. Or you can make a choice to be antagonistic and suffer the consequences. And this is a story about a, a woman whose brother, she and her brother and her mom and dad were the only people they knew and they went out in search of other people after her mom and dad died. And it's like the foibles of humans is what this highlights. I won't tell the whole story because it, it'd be too long. But there's several characteristics to these stories that I find enlightening. And when I listened to them, first thing I noticed was, uh, I was listening to um, uh, this guy Orville we used to do sweat lodges with, <clears throat> and he'd start talking, and he always talked in present tense, even when he told a story, and so that you would feel like you were there. And that's what she does. Mm-hmm. You know, she makes you feel like you're taking the journey that they take, and you're learning the things that they learn. You have the lessons that they have. And it's a very effective way of storytelling, and it takes a takes a while to get used to if you're raised in the Western tradition, in the Western European tradition. You change tenses for future, past, and they don't do that in those stories. You're there the whole time. It's like they're seeing it for the first time with you, like you're there with them. And that's I would say, though, if you're looking for yeah, if you're looking for the whale in this story, you're gonna have to don't hold your breath because it takes the whale actually comes part of the story a little bit later. And they change back and forth between. Yeah, and then they morph into, and that's part of, I think, what you're referring to, the kinship, feeling the the, the closeness allows them to have human, the human qualities are kind of described in the, in the story. So it it gets back and forth a little bit. 
Yeah. And yeah, it's it's more the journey, I think, than the than <laughs> getting any kind of big message. Destination. Yeah, than the yeah. destination. Yeah. 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 It was it's pretty cool. You know, usually in the Western, you know, Western United States, there's a lot of stories about men and women changing into animals. But in this story, the animals change into men and women. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so it's a little it's interesting. Little, yeah, definitely yeah. a little different. Uh, but it does, different. It's it's near and dear to personification. So and oh, kinship. Yeah. So kinship, that's all yeah. all very good. So. As I mentioned before, if you want to take a look, there's a you can look up the uh, the author and this and that and and, and good reads and I'm um, excuse me yeah. on Amazon and find it. So all all very good. Yeah, now before we before I'll make a little transition for us here. One of the key things about this story is you know the practice of deceit. Yeah, you notice in the story there's a big part of it where the. Uh, She's living with the whale people, the sister is, and she wants to get back to her brother because she forgot about him. And in order to do it, she needs a medicine to take to him because he's been changed. He grew these horns and attached them to the tree. And so to cure him, the whale girl, her sister-in-law, says, hey, you know, uh, we're going to have to trick your husband, the whale, into... uh, going on a quest to get you a red cloud because you're going to need a red cloud to cure his horns. So it was very wow, interesting. That's a, that was almost a, a spoiler alert needed there, huh? Mm. Almost. I guess that's a, <laughs> I consider it a taste. I consider it a taste. A tease, yeah, it's a tease. The word uh, is two well, words. Actually, it is, and it's going to segue into our two takes. It's strategic ambiguity. And strategic ambiguity, it's a policy of deliberate confusion, inconsistency, omission. And it's amazing that quite often uh, government policy, foreign policy can have it. I actually have seen it used in, in organizations that like to create strategic ambiguity or where they'll give you like an employee policy. And then before you know it, the next week it changes and before you don't know what you're doing and well, gee, should I be uh, taking the afternoon off or should I be working? And since, you know, if you're a good employee, you just assume you have to work. And all of a sudden, you've got the employee working when they shouldn't be. All good. So, I mean, here we have it with respect to something that's happened rather relatively recent. And uh, so the example of strategic ambiguity that I give here is uh, for President Biden. Uh, this last week, he, there appears to be a little strategic ambiguity in the stance on a on his stance on the Chinese invasion of Taiwan. In a news conference on Monday, just this past Monday in Japan, Biden said, "If China invades the U.S., we U.S. will come to the aid uh, Taiwan's aid militarily." Now, uh, you know, mm. so everybody says, hey, uh, Biden, uh, you know, said, yes, we would come to the aid. But then you could, you know, his staff tap danced a little bit. And you heard in the press the words strategic ambiguity to describe our policy towards Taiwan. And that kind of segues into our two takes, because, yeah, it's not real clear exactly what our policy is with respect to Taiwan. And it's something that that the news people are interested in because of our stance that we've taken with respect to uh, Ukraine and Russia. 
So I decided to kind of take a, a, a little spin into this and, and take a look at mm. what's going on. So, like I said before, press conference, uh, Biden makes this uh, appears to be a, a little pause and says, yes, that's a commitment that we made. And you look at it and somebody says, is this a senior moment or is this this or that? <laughs> is it confusion? And I think as I take a look at the background here, Biden has actually uh, made a rather a clear comment that is very consistent with what we've been doing over the past, you know, since World War uh, Two. And so that's the way I kind of uh, look at it. It, it. it represents no change. So is this confusing? Is it inconsistent? Yes. But guess what? That's strategic ambiguity. And it's oh, best. <laughs> it is. So in this way, maybe what Biden has done is he hasn't made it. He, ha- he hasn't said he hasn't had a senior moment. What he's maybe done is implemented strategic ambiguity. So that's kind of the way I looked at it. But I decided to take a deep dive and I'm going to race through a few things that kind of explains our situation with Taiwan because Ukraine's been in the news so much. Red China gets in there, you know, a little bit. But if we take a, uh, a trip on the way back machine, we have to go all the way back to the 30s and 40s when China was being trampled by uh, Japan on the wake of, of the uh, World War II before they actually attacked Pearl Harbor. So Japan occupies uh, China. And at that point, when you take a look at, at China, mainland China, we're talking about a borderline third world country, uh, third world country with a plenty of potential. But basically, it's been beat up through famine, war, uh, pestilence, you name it, it. It's had it. And But it's still, we're talking about either the third slash fourth uh, largest country in, in uh, square miles. And even back in the 30s and 40s, we're talking 50 million people. It has a billion and a 500 million people. So it's even, that's, wow. you know, a third of what it has right now. But it, it's pretty big. So... Uh, what happens is at the end of the war, we decide, uh, you know, we, we get our we're, we got to say, you know, what are we going to do with these, you know, the spoils of war with these beat up countries, Germany and Japan? Well, when it comes to you know Europe, we got all the allies to help us. But when it comes to Asia, we're kind of sitting there all alone and we concentrate yeah. on Japan and we don't really take too close a look at, at, at what is happening on in terms of actively directly involved in places such as China, Korea, Southeast Asia. And we know the stories with respect to all three of those. There's a consistent thing that's happened is we've indirectly been involved in the politics and creating democracy and unfortunately suffered the, 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 the growing pains of democracy. And part yeah. of those growing pains is corruption. So oh, yeah. uh, we, we supported governments in all three of them that have basically had their, their problems. And uh, here we are still the biggest of those is, is, red, is China. So we support a country by 1949. The, uh, the the Russians have actually had a little bit of peace. What's amazing about the Russians, they declared war on Japan in August of 1945. Little Johnny come <laughs> lately there, huh? Yeah, I a mean, little we, bit. Yeah. <laughs> and then they're then they're all ticked off because they don't get involved in the occupation of Japan. But we give them, we throw them a bone and say, hey, look, your border uh, country is uh, China. So we'll let you get a little involved in terms of their what's going on there. Well, they got more than a little involved yeah, you know, by that because communism took over by 1949. The the, the political government, the political uh, government that we uh, uh, were supporting was pushed off of mainland China and ends up going into 
uh, Taiwan, which is about 100 miles uh, east of, of, of mainland China, and it's got 23 million people. So, I mean, we're not talking a big country, but it ended up becoming pretty well developed. What's funny about it is that actually it was considered by the, 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 the Taiwan government that was there, as we know it now, was going to be a staging area to come back and take over China. Well, yeah. Good luck. Uh-huh. I mean, that didn't uh-huh. exactly happen. No. So uh, what, what's happened in the interim, though, is kind of interesting, because when we say we make a military commitment to them, we've actually had uh, four different times where we've had to make it. Uh, we've really where Red China has pushed us to the limit and invaded little islands. In addition to Taiwan, there's over 100 islands around it, little islands. Mm. So it seems like Red China has, has found itself so has invaded occasionally some of those islands and. When Eisenhower was president, uh, well, even before that, we got to think about Truman. He had to make a declaration that we would, you know, throw our resources towards not only uh, not only Taiwan but also to, to South Korea. But and then, of course, we had to uh, we decided with respect to Taiwan that uh, Red China was really making some fast moves towards it and invading those smaller islands. And Eisenhower yeah. got really fed up and said, "Enough's enough." They actually deployed uh, they, uh, ships, carriers around them that uh, they were we were history shows actually had low grade nuclear uh, weapons on them. So we were we meant business when we when we said we were going to really defend it. But as as time developed, even up through 1996, when we were trying to uh, to make sure that, you know, that Taiwan was represented. It, 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 uh, it Clinton had to make some some decisions that clearly we we defended it. But in the interim, what's happened is, of course, Red China has become such an uh, enormous, well-developed country that we are almost forced into making trading relationships with them. And we're also we put them on the Security Council and bounce the Taiwan China off of it. But here's what's interesting. We do not have diplomatic relations with Taiwan. And no, only we 15 don't. countries in the world do. And the reason wow. being that uh, Red China has says, look, you got to make up your mind. Either you have relationships with us or Taiwan, because guess what? We consider Taiwan officially part of us. It just happens to be occupied by this other country, and we just haven't made that fast move to, to take it over. So it's mm-hmm. it's a very tenuous, contentious yeah. relationship that exists. And uh, it was so I think what Biden said was good. History proves. That yes, we have done it, and and there's no reason that that you know not, nothing's been said that we wouldn't. So I, I think that this was not a senior moment. I think this was something that was uh, that that he said that it, that was very accurate, and it also created this, this strategic ambiguity. It kind of it made everybody kind of scratch their head or aghast. Oh my God, did he really say that? So I thought it was pretty good. So that's, well, that yeah, is that's, that. That's very interesting, John. Uh, I didn't I didn't know all that stuff about. Uh, I I knew the broad strokes, but uh, for instance, I didn't know Taiwan was like an archipelago, you know, a whole bunch of islands and stuff like that. Yeah, that's you know? where most of the action has taken place. That's and in, in, in what's kind of funny when the fifties. It's it, what what Red China is doing is it's saying, "Are you willing to risk?" confrontation over a couple of little islands because they you know they, yeah. so they that's what they kind of they, they've done in the past that's where i kind of got the background on the islands so oh, interesting well you know speaking of presidents and, and strategic ambiguity uh george w bush uh, proud texan 
Uh, he had his own form of this art, and he he called it strategery. <laughs> you remember? <laughs> oh yeah, I love to use that word. It's a funny word. It's it's one of those words, kind of like uh, you say, well. It's uh, what is it? It's not. It's not rocket surgery. <laughs> oh right, yeah, yeah. yeah. When, you're, when somebody Brain says, well, "This isn't that difficult science. to do," you say rather than, "Yeah, you say rocket surgery." That's I love that one. <laughs> yeah, that's a George Bushism. He's a funny guy. Anyway, uh, hey, speaking of funny guys, what do you think? A couple groaners. I'm ready. Go. Are brought to us by Vincent Anthony, Anthony Lauder Jr. Commonly referred to as the coach. He's come up with a couple of really good ones, so let's go for Ooh. it. Okay. Why did the man in the grocery store show no interest in shopping? Why did the man in the grocery show, store show no interest in shopping? He felt it was a fruitless behavior. Good. You got half of them. I'm going to give you a partial credit because the list isn't part of it. He was listless. I got it. I got it. How can you shop without a shopping list? Exactly. And also listless, of course, means, you know, bored. Yeah. 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 Double entendre. Okay. Okay. I'm ready to rock. I'm ready. One more. I'll give you a partial on that one. Here. Why should you never buy lettuce at the mama's and papa's grocery store? Why should you never? Because all the leaves are brown. Oh, sugar! I, I I knew you'd get that because you you yeah. live on lyrics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, uh, you did a great job. Thank you. Okay, sir. all good. Talk to you later. <laughs>